Every pet owner in America has a 1 in 17 chance of lining Marshall Morris's pockets with money. But as the CEO of iHeartDogs, Marshall's mission goes beyond just profits. And then in addition, they're getting to see kind of like our servant's heart, right? Like how we operate, what we believe in, and what we're doing together with the community. Just traffic itself, it means nothing. You want to attract the people that have the right profile, searching for the right things that are the highest probability user of your product or service. From a content perspective in SEO, right now our strategy is we're going to 10x the amount of content we put out. So if in the past 10 years we did 20,000 pieces, you know, in the next 10 years we want to have a million. You have to be adaptable and you have to be tenacious. You've got to be able to overcome. you got to think through problems and not be stopped by them. You don't want to reinvent the wheel. You want to keep refining and building your process. So as new platforms come out, as new technology advances, it's really great to see kind of battle-proofed or battle-tested results and then being able to apply that to your business. I'm your host, Alex Freeman. Join me as we delve into the inner workings of this $22 million a year e-commerce giant, from their genius marketing strategies to their unique community-centric approach. Marshall, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Yeah, I'm excited to be here, Alex. For those that are on the YouTube channel, they know we have featured iHeartDogs recently on the YouTube channel. But for those that haven't encountered that video yet, can you briefly explain what iHeartDogs is and how you got started in the business? Absolutely. iHeartDogs or iHeartDogs.com. We're a pet health and wellness company. We create products and services to help us live the longest, best life with our pets. From our genesis, we started 10 years ago building online communities around the joy of having a pet, sharing education and helping others in their pet journey. And then from there, we looked at the needs of our community and and we decided we're going to start solving those one by one. And we've done that for the past 10 years. And here we are. Amazing. Amazing. So before you got into the business, what kind of planning did you do? Research did you do? And is there anything that you didn't plan for that you wish that you had? Always. I think there's always look back as an entrepreneur figuring, hey, I could have done this better. But honestly, this was the quintessential build the parachute after you jump launch. We didn't know how to build a company. We didn't know how to run financials. We didn't even know how to ship products. But what we did know, what people needed, what people wanted, and that came from the communities. So that was key. And so for us, knowing what people want, we were able to go figure out the rest of it out. Now, on the question of what did we plan or what could we do differently, I think if we could do it all again, we would start building email lists and, and really focus on SEO sooner, tactically, because we've seen we're a very heavy social company. We've seen that change. We've had to adapt and we've still done it well. But earlier on, if we had to kind of push a little bit harder into those channels, I think we would see an impact because those channels tend to compound over time. So while we're really big into those now, um, if we had started earlier, looking back, we probably would have seen even more growth. I want to ask you about tapping into that community. I guess we'll start from the perspective of you as a brand new business and what advice you might have for brand new online businesses to identify and connect with the broader community for their product. When we're dealing products or brands, what we found is that the communities that have a passionate base of people who self kind of identify and self collect, meaning they find a way to get together somewhere, some way, tend to have a lot more longevity long-term for a myriad of reasons. For when we look at a product itself or a brand itself, one of the first questions is, is there a community existing or is there a community we can build from this? And the reasons why, there's a tactical reason why, ultimately, when you have the right products in the right place, you start generating sales just from association. The community shares it, the community engages with the brand and things like that. And you see that across the board. If you look at Nike, Nike started really in the fitness space, right? Track and field. And so there were communities there. And so it started, oh, what are you wearing? Hey, what is that? Where'd you get that? Those kind of things that happen organically. And those 
push brands further because you're not just relying on paid spend, meaning you're paying to introduce your product to someone and hoping that they buy it. So community is a really important factor. And so when you're evaluating any type of business, a product, a product extension, anything like that, I think the one of the best things that entrepreneur can do is pull back and say, okay, is there a community that can serve while I'm building this? Because not only will it help your marketing costs ultimately, because that is important, you're going to get a lot of idea and a lot of feedback. And that itself will help you make better decisions. I'm curious about walking the line as you enter into some of these communities with entering with a servant's heart, I guess, to actually like create something that is useful versus coming across as somebody who's just like pushing a new product to be sold. There's this concept that we've embodied since day one. And and there's a phrase, it's called incremental reciprocity. And it's kind of like, you give me something, I give you something. Like we're wired like that, right? And so from a servant's perspective, what you want to do is either you're building community, you're creating a place and you're honoring that and your audience the way they want to connect and what they want to see and how they want to engage each other. It's like you're being a steward of that community or you're going to an existing one and you're serving, you're finding how to plug in and serve, find a way to create value. And this is beyond just, hey, I have a product you should try, right? You see this in brands, especially one space that is probably a really good example is in the fitness space, right? So a lot of brands uh, have fitness brands with their workout gear, for example, right? Whether it be like shirts and shorts and all these kind of things. If you notice the strongest brands aren't just saying buy this stuff, they're actually showcasing, they're showing their community how to work out. They're showing their community how to connect. They're showing their community, they're supporting the community in events, things like that. They're sponsoring key people in their community. And they're also inspiring and motivating the community. And you see a lot of that. And so that's an example of like brands who said, okay, hey, like, there's going to be people that get together and work out across all of the world. How do we create a space for ourselves to fluently engage in that in a way that doesn't sound salesy? And there's definitely strategy and tactics, but when you do it well, it's a harmony almost, right? You just seamlessly fit. What's one mistake that you made when you were building the iHeartDogs community? And what did you learn from that experience? When you're running a company like any kind of online company, ultimately sales solve problems, right? Like you've got to sell products to keep the lights on and things like that. And there were times where we maybe leaned a little bit too hard into it. We were like, hey, hey, let, you know, product first. And then we kind of like had to autocorrect in a way like, all right, hold on. Like, let's rebuild the strategy from the ground up. Meaning like, let's not just push product. Let's figure out how to get it in people's hands. Maybe we select a hundred people to send product to and just get their feedback, get some UGC, those kind of things. We learned that lesson too. I mean, is that like when you're managing a community or you're part of one, it's a delicate balance. Because you don't want to take more than you give. That's the ultimate sin and that will kill you. We've certainly had that challenge as well. And it's a real one. It's hard. It's hard out there to do that. But when you do it right, it's it's one of those powerful things you can build. Listeners, you can find winning blueprints to start an online business on upflip.com. Check out the site for actionable advice and expert insights from real world entrepreneurs that can help you start your own business today. Marshall, I feel like we've been dancing around the social networks here. and We haven't really engaged it directly. So I want to ask, how do you like social media platforms play into this? And what are some of the best platforms for building that community? Yeah, that's a great question. So we're very heavy social. We run 100 Facebook pages. 100 Facebook accounts, uh, dozens of Instagrams. Like if you can imagine, we try to find every single niche in the pet space and build a community around it, whether you own a, a big dog or whether you own a German Shepherd, right? Those kind of things. Or you rescue your dog. There's a community for you. So we're very heavy into this and that's not going away. So from a social perspective, it really depends on the demo of your audience and where they naturally connect. And this ultimately is one of the biggest failures I see is that people want to build a community where they want to build it. So like, hey, we're going to create this community over here. But the rest of the people who are interested in that topic or that passion are 
over somewhere else, right? And so the key is you want to figure out where your people are and where they're active, and then that's where you want to build the community. That tends to look like now in the landscape today, you got Facebook, Facebook groups, typically Facebook groups for certain things. Instagram is really great for small communities, especially fitness, things like that, where it's very visual, right? And they want it in the audience different type of experience. TikTok is, is one that's emerging too. And people are learning how to manage trends there. Ultimately, you're going to have to find to figure out a way to, we use the word acquire, but really opt in to connect with people via SMS, email, like directly. Like the direct connection is absolutely key. So all those social platforms really work well for different reasons. We're seeing emerging ones and we're learning a lot from an organic like presence a community meaning like people just show up naturally and are drawn into those kind of communities tends to be Facebook or Instagram and still and then um, obviously TikTok is emerging too and they're they're kind of trying to figure that out as well. The other ones that right now there's two more that really you see a lot happening on Twitter is one. It's a different type of community. Again, it depends on who your target is and where they naturally connect. And another one that's really surprising us lately is Reddit. So with your Reddit threads and people who follow these Reddit threads, we're seeing a lot of opportunity in supporting the community and adding value because there's, again, 90% of people or more just instantly think about the transaction. Buy this, take my stuff, buy my stuff, I want this. But if you go in and try to add a lot of value and you do that consistently, you can be successful across any platform. Now, you mentioned that it was important to move those potential customers and eventual customers off of the social platforms into email lists, SMS marketing. I want to get into the how, but the first question there is obviously the why. Why is that important? All these platforms ultimately are run based on the economics of revenue, right? At some point in time. So like, they're sure with Facebook in any public company, like Twitter's private now, right? But there's forces that drive their decision making that's not necessarily community minded. The forces that drive it tend to be based on revenue, tend to be based on shareholder value, tend to be based on other things, right? So like when they decide that, when we've learned this, because remember, you know, this is only 10 years old. We've learned a lot through these platforms that ultimately you could build in one platform and it could be in your favor. And then this is as happens quite a bit where they change something in the algorithm because remember they're all algorithm driven to some extent and ultimately all that work kind of changes right like you know you're getting a ton of traffic or a ton of people seeing your posts all of a sudden they're not right you've got to hedge your bets this is very similar though to like the retail concept so if you have a retail store near a starbucks right by bar none you're going to get a ton of traffic starbucks just brings in a ton of traffic if that starbucks is gone right which you don't control all of a sudden your foot traffic can rapidly decrease right so it's a similar model of like, okay, how do I make sure that I can reach my people regardless of what happens on the platform? And that's where acquiring email and SMS or getting people to sign up. And there's a few different ways you can do that too, is extremely important for the longevity of the business. Just to give you guys an example, kind of behind the curtains. So we started this, we really started ramping up email about four or five years ago. We have probably 5 million emails across our whole infrastructure. If Facebook goes down, we can still make money. So it certainly is advantageous to hedge your bets, even though sometimes you feel like you're really winning that's great. But ultimately, you want to control your destiny. That does bring us to the how. How do you then move them either off the social platforms or acquire them in other ways to get them onto your email list? How do you start that process? And how do you make sure that they you know, don't subscribe and cancel immediately? Right. So there's a couple of different ways. One is when you're thinking about acquisition or acquiring new users, there's the transactional component. That's what most people think about. Subscribe, meaning pay me something, right? or buy a product, like obviously that's going to happen there, right? You're getting data. There's got to be a top funnel. And I think that's really where a lot of brands missed. For example, we'll do in the pet niche, we may do a training guide for free, 100% free. 
ton of value. We invest in it. We're the best trainers in the country or in the world put together a course, right? Roll it out for free. Hey, it's free, right? Right. Ton of value. People who sign up now are acquiring their email. We also know more what they're interested in, right? We do the same thing actually in multiple different ways. So we'll do one, for example, maybe there's natural remedies people are looking for. We're seeing high search demand. People are looking to solve the dog's allergy, their dog's itching, things like that, right? We'll create resources for them that they can access via an email. And then that allows us to organically, we have this thing for you and it's zero charge for our community. Zero. Awesome. I'm in, right? Email, boom, now we know who they are. We know about the tool that we offer. Also, we try to create them in a way that that itself creates information that we can then use to better understand who they are. So like, it wouldn't be like, we wouldn't do something really general. It's like, oh, how to be happy with your dog. This too general. It'd be very specific, right? So like a training guide may have a few key components in it. We know who take that guide. They're interested in those things, right? If it has to do with itch, allergy, something like that, like your dog's itching a lot or you're having issues with that, they'll be specific. So we create free resources and we've done this for years and it's worked really well. And we do digital, which is awesome because it's free and we're actually set up to do physical. So we have our own fulfillment center that we built from the ground up. So like we can run free stuff uh, where people actually just pay a couple bucks for shipping and they get something free. But it's an acquisition tool because now we know what they're interested in. We get their information. Now we have a way to connect with them outside of you know social or outside of pay. Once you've got the list, how are you then taking advantage of that? You know, you've brought them in with this great value proposition and then now they're there. How do you nurture them and get the most engagement from those subscribers? The technology platforms, especially email providers, have gotten far more robust. And especially with AI, it's been an incredible journey in the last six months, just to say the least. So what we're doing is when they come in the funnel to a specific funnel, they're going to get tagged. There's a topic they're interested in, right? That they've engaged a resource around free. And so digital or paid, right? So they're going to go into a funnel. They're going to get tagged based on that stuff. And then we're going to actually build an automation sequence via email. So automatically goes out with specific information that's relevant to that. So can we add more value, right? So they come in for one thing, then we add a ton more value through automations. In that automation sequence, there are opportunities, there's soft asks where they can say, hey, look, you know, here's how to solve X, Y, Z. Here's what other owners are doing. Here you go. Oh, and by the way, if you want to try this, it's 20% off. We'll weed those in there in a non-salesy way. And so for us, it's two things. One, it's a, we want them to know us as the expert for this condition because that means that they're going to trust us when we make recommendations. So it's filled our expertise. Our brands specifically also have a very heavy give back program and everything. We're one of the top fundraisers for animal shelters in the country consistently. So like we'll weave that in as well. So someone who comes in for one thing, they're getting a ton of value. They recognize that we're the experts in an area because we've hired the best minds in the world to write content. And then in addition, they're getting to see kind of like our servant's heart, right? Like how we operate, what we believe in and what we're doing together with the community. And usually through that, process, they get to know who we are, and they actually become connected to us in a deeper way than just a transaction, right? So like we're able to warm that up. Again, that happens because we're getting fighting something up from that's a tremendous value for them. It solves a problem. It solves a need. And then they're willing to lean in as we connect with them more. So tactically, you're looking at your top funnel is, you know, free resource or digital physical product, something that gets them the door, identifies who they are. And then you're going to basically create, build an automation sequence that supports them at continues to add value, right? And then kind of introduces your brand in a really unique way that it's one-on-one. How does your email strategy differ from your SMS marketing strategy? You know, obviously they feel similar in some ways in terms of ways in which you're communicating. You know, they're obviously different platforms, different ways you're reaching somebody. So how do the strategies differ? So SMS, it's a great question because SMS is very personal. 
if you think about it, like email at this point in time, and we get tons of email, right? Like it comes in, we get a whole load of email. SMS is very personal. So it takes a lot more tactful approach when we're doing that. We don't have automations for SMS per se the same way. So like an email automation, we may create a timing sequence based on what we see as optimal time to connect. The amount of information that we deliver in a certain period of time. And the data will tell you that, right? Like, hey, you know, an email every three days for two weeks works really, really well, right? Where one every day is too much, those kind of things. SMS though is a different beast. SMS is very personal. And so when we're SMS, we tend to use, you know, 20%. So from our marketing perspective, you know, I would say that email comprises maybe 80% of what we're doing and maybe SMS is 20% because you have to be a lot more tactful. We all sign up and get SMSs from brands and we've all gotten way too much. So you've got to be very, very selective with SMS. We tend to use more of a personal approach meaning it'll come from me personally. So like the first SMS might be a note for me. That's it. There's no link. There's nothing. Just literally saying, thank you. This is what we're doing. We appreciate you. That's it. And so you try to continue that cadence because again, it is a very personal medium. You don't want to blast it the way you do email. So we just have a different strategy depending on how people respond. And we tend to take way more personal approach with SMS. How do you go about building an SMS list? Is the top of the funnel look the same for email? It does two different ways. I mean, you can actually, when you're doing acquisition, you can have people opt in via SMS and email as well. Some people do both. So it's very much fundamentally the same, but the way we communicate with it, again, like I said, it really does take a different strategy to do it well. It's the same top funnel. We do run some campaigns where it's specific SMS, like, hey, if you want this, like drop your number, we'll text it to you, right? That's another way you can do it versus like, hey, go check your email. It's like, hey, we'll, we'll send it to your phone, right? And it depends on the product too. Cause like, if it's a product, they're going to, if it's like ebook or something, they may not want to read that whole phone per se, right? Cause it's in the text and stuff. So we might default to email and have our SMS as an option. We're rolling out this new Pet RX card, which stakes 90% on their pets discounts at the pharmacy up to 90%. That's a physical card, like a Costco card kind of thing, right? So like, we'll just SMS that to them. It's free. And they save up to 90% on their pets meds and we'll just literally push it on there, boop, and you, your card shows up on your phone. You can save it. So it depends on the offer. But again, with SMS, we're a lot more tactful about how we use that because it's a very personal medium. We've covered the social side of getting folks to your site. We've talked about some of what's going to happen when they actually land there. But I'm curious how organic search plays into your strategy as well. You just kind of talk about that initially, and then we'll dive into some kind of hows and what's involved there. We're really excited about organic search. Even now, a lot of people have mixed feelings about it because it's one of those things, again, like anything else online where you can run a strategy, it could change based on an update or things like that. We found that for us, we've been writing content for 10 years. So we have probably 20,000 pieces of written content that we've written, like not AI, like had an expert, right? And so we have a high ranking Google. So when we tend to create content, it sticks faster than the site has a lower kind of domain authority, right? So for us, SEO has become more and more a channel and a focus for us, especially when it comes to our niche. Some niches have very high search volume because there's so many questions. Those tend to be around, if you think about it, anything around health, a pet's health, your health, right? Those kind of things. They tend to have a lot of search volume because you're looking for information that you just don't have in your circle, right? like expert stuff. And so for us, we look at searching a great opportunity to introduce people to the brand. We use runner acquisition through that too. And then also we help people find products. So like we'll look at the way people are searching for certain things 
because people are using the search to solve problems. They're getting information, they're solving problems. That's typical Google search. So we're writing content nonstop around what we're finding, trending searches, those kind of things to help answer those questions and actually give them options to take action. So like if they're looking to solve a problem, they're pet right around this thing. Like here's what you need to know. Here's uh, everything that to make you as informed as possible. And then by the way, here's some, some options you could jump into right now, whether it's go to Amazon and buy that for months or whatever, one of your choices. So we try to be very neutral in how we write content, meaning that like it's not just like about us. Right. We're trying to give them as many options as possible. If you channel a product in there, if you can't, that's fine too. But search is a powerful tool and it's just built in. People are like psychologically ingrained to search Google. And so you can't ignore that. We don't feel like we can. So we do that. The other thing we've been doing this year, which is really big for us, is using AI as a way to generate content that then goes to our writing team. We think that big picture AI and writing is a perfect fit especially from a, just from getting ideation of ideas to core content to research analysis, like stuff that's kind of, that really would take someone hours you can get in seconds. And then we have a team that goes over that. So for us, from a content perspective, and SEO, right now our strategy is we're at 10x the amount of content we put out. So it's in the past 10 years, we did 20,000 pieces. You know, the next 10 years, we want to have a million something like crazy like that. So that's more than 10x. But like, we feel like we can do that with a combination of writer talent and then AI. And so for SEO, again, SEO is all about finding people where they're searching that uh, have relevancy to our brands, which is pet health, pet health and wellness, and then getting them engaged there. So they land on a page. It's well put together. It's well informed, right? has options. They feel like they got everything they need and they could take action if they want to. And then in that itself, we will also run top funnel offers. So if like you're looking up, for example, again, pet health, because that's our niche. And at the end of the content for SEO, so you come from SEO, which you have high intent, we may actually have some guides there as well that are relevant to that topic, right? So like natural bathing solutions for a dog with skin allergies, right? It's a guide of some sort. And then you can drop email or SMS, right? And you can see how that kind of all kind of goes together. I think you just laid out a really nice roadmap for a lot of people that they just kind of copy that. They're probably off to at least a decent start in terms of setting up their e-commerce business. I'm curious if there are any don'ts that you would like to get out there that maybe you see as being bad advice out there on, on SEO. I think every brand is different. Like there's obviously things that are 100% no. Like one of the big ones we're seeing is like people are like, hey, I'm just going to write AI content. That's it, right? It's getting better, better, better. As long as the value is there. One case to me is like, well, if it served the consumer in the best way possible and provides the best information, then like is it an issue for Google, right? And then the other side of it is, well, someone scales 10 million pieces of content in 30 days, you know, like how does Google absorb that in these things? There's a lot we don't know. I don't know if I'd say that I don't know. What I would say more is like, just make sure whatever you're writing is not just to write it. It's actually moving someone through a process so that they're getting the information they need from the intent. Because otherwise you're going to have a really high balance rate, right? Like if you're running content towards a search term, say someone's looking up the best exercise for, you know, legs or something, I don't know, right? Something, right? Whatever that is. They get in there and it's just literally doesn't solve the problem and doesn't completely answer that, they're going to bounce pretty quickly. And so you want to make sure whatever content you put out, it's less about volume and it's more about value. And so if you can do value and volume, do it. If you can't do value and volume, then just do value because those pieces are going to have so much more weight and so much more longevity for you than stuff that you just rapid fire. And again, we know this because the very beginning, we're just like, get it out with what we saw in volume, not value. Not that they didn't have value, but you really weren't taking intently about 
how people consume and, and apply the things that we're putting together. And it was short-lived. And so we ended up having to rewrite all that stuff again. Like all of it had to be rewritten. So we kind of had to do it or the work two, three times over, right? Where I think if you create value online, there's always going to be an opportunity. There's less staying power when you create a really good piece of content. So, and again, you're going to be rewarded. People go there and that stay. That's a signal. And that signals get rewarded by Google for sure. So you've got all these things working, you've got a lot of inbound traffic coming to the site. How do you make sure that what you're attracting are high quality leads for the business? Well, there's two different sides of the house. There's organic, and that's where SEO and content goes into play. So the content you're doing is you're looking for search terms that are relevant to the problem you're solving. So if you're selling running shoes, writing content about the best running half may or may not match. Now, you may find a runner who then goes, well, I need shoes. You could win there, right? Alongside of that, if you're writing content about the best running socks, that's kind of a lot closer, right? Because like, if you're actually looking up what the best socks are, you're probably a performance-based runner in some way, shape, or form, right? Like you're going in deeper, right? And so if you're doing that, you're probably doing the same thing with shoes, you know? And so like, you want to make sure though, no matter what content you're creating, it's really highly relevant for the brand. And so the leads that come in are actually, you're attracting the right person. And so there's some thought and strategy around like what people are looking for. Just traffic itself, it means nothing. You want to attract the people that are, have the right profile, searching for the right things that are the highest probability user of your product or service. That itself is super important. Now on the paid side, when I say paid, I mean, we're paying to promote product or paying to promote a piece of content. So an article, a listicle, a guide, like we're actually paying to put that and then we're running targeting to people who we feel like that. So going to the runner analogy, right? So if if I was running, I wanted to get a hold of runners, well, I can actually find those segments, find those groups, do that targeting. I'd make sure whatever I was creating to generate leads inbound or traffic inbound, like the guide itself was super relevant to them. So it could be the top 10 running shoes ranked by elite peers. Whatever it is. The paid side is easier because it's targeting. That's inbound. When you're creating SEO content based on interest, you just want to make sure the dots are connected. Whatever you're writing is, is highly relevant to the brand. Traffic by default, again, doesn't really mean much. You want the right traffic, right? You rather have 10 people who are the exact customer than have a thousand who have no clue what you offer and have no desire for it. We've talked about kind of already some of the ways that e-commerce has changed, Google has changed, SEO has changed, AI is changing things. How do you stay on top of changes and trends in the e-commerce world? What news sources or resources might you recommend? Yeah, there's a handful. One is Twitter. If you're in e-commerce and you're doing D2C or B2B, if you're selling directly to people through a channel, Amazon, or you're selling to businesses, you got to be on Twitter for that. There's so much amazing content and creators who are just open and honest about what they're doing. There's a lot of value there. And it can be a lot, but that's part of the process of just inbound. So I spent a lot of time in this kind of analysis of what's going on, the state of e-com, the state of the economy in the US, the state of the economy globally, right? And then also our consumer segment, where they are financially and those kind of things. The other one I would say is a big win is like, if you're building a business e-com or any business in general, you absolutely need to be in a mastermind with people who are building this similar things in different spaces or in the same space. There's a mastermind that I'm in called Hamptons. And like I've been there for, this is my second year and it's been absolutely incredible because the guys in their building are builders and they're learning the same time I am. And so sometimes they'll figure something out before I would. And then I'm able to fast track my team into the success, right? Like, hey, no, actually let's try this. This worked for them. It'll work for us. And that has been absolutely incredible. Like I could probably put a dollar amount on that. And I mean, we 
probably millions of dollars just from wisdom or input from builders in a community or on Twitter, just from helping us connect the dots. Because like, there's so much intel out there. You don't want to reinvent the wheel. You want to keep refining and building your process. So as new platforms come out, as new technology advances, it's really great to see kind of battle-proofed or battle-tested results and then being able to apply that to your business. So those are the two places I feel like I get the most value. As those changes and trends dictate that your business needs to evolve or adapt, how do you make those changes without wholly disrupting the business? That's a great question. I think that any type of change is going to cause some disruption. From the beginning of starting I Heart Dogs, one of our core values is tenacity, or actually for humility, tenacity, adaptability, and generosity. And we've told people from day one, like, you're going to have to be adaptable and tenacious, period. Like we hire and fire in those value principles. So from day one, that's it. So like when, when something is really challenging, it's like, well, that's what we do. Like we have a mantra, we eat challenges for breakfast. Literally you say that all the time. We knew from the beginning that if you're building online, it's probably one of the most challenging places to build. It's very much like building a ship at sea, right? Where there's so many factors that are influencing your business based on the government, based on the economy, based on regulation, based on location, based on shipping. Like UPS just almost went on strike, right? These kind of things like you can't control the pandemic, right? You have to be adaptable and you have to be tenacious. You got to be able to overcome. You got to think through problems and not be stopped by them. For us, building the culture was a key part of that. And that's something that I always encourage other entrepreneurs too, is like, you chose a business that's extremely challenging and you have to be adaptable because you cannot control so many variables. And some businesses, we like to think we can control them. If you're trucking stuff, right? Like you get a load, you drive it, you drop it off. You know, it might feel more straightforward, but there's obviously a lot of variables in that. In the internet, it's like far more complex. So adaptability is key. You got to have a team that's on board that really is like, all right, today, everything just blew up and we got to change it. And so sometimes we're able to kind of walk these changes through and say, hey, you change that, you do this, then everything else functions. And sometimes you got to just throw a stick of dynamite in it. Just be like, all right, it's time. We just exploded it. Now we got to put it back together. So having people that have that mindset is critical, is really critical for that. What is the most challenging part of scaling revenue for an online business? I think it's managing the complexities of the finances, honestly. So remember, you're selling online. So about a few years ago, the Supreme Court overturned the Wayfair versus some state's tax thing, meaning that every state can collect tax, every jurisdiction can collect tax, essentially, from an e-com business. Then there's thresholds. So like literally overnight, an e-com business selling online has over 9,000 tax jurisdictions in the U.S. that they have to figure out, right? And so that's a financial impact, right? So you got all this complexity. Then you have different payment systems, right? And what they're charging, what they're doing and how they're paying you. Then you're actually having suppliers. So like, I think the biggest challenge is actually financial complexity because the internet also doesn't sleep. It's not like you open the doors from nine to five and you just have sales from nine to five. You have sales every single hour of every single day, right? Nonstop every day of the year. I think one of the biggest challenges is really understanding that. Like that's a very difficult thing, especially you scale. Because like if you're doing a few hundred thousand, it's not much. A couple million, you can manage that. Once you're doing 10 million plus, it's very complex. And you're dealing with cash flow. So you go to the cash flow game, which is like, I'm making money, but is my money inventory or is it in the bank? Right. And can I make these investments and those kind of things? That is the biggest challenge. And then also managing marketing because you can make sales come in and, and lose everything. But you can actually be selling product and lose everything because the online system will just keep finding the next buyer regardless of what 
the idea of like measuring after the iOS update, the idea of measuring your success, your transactional success and where it came from and how much you're spending is so convoluted, right? Like it's very difficult to really read like conversion data now because of Apple and Facebook and these things. I think financial. So one thing that I always tell people it's absolutely critical is like as you're scaling your business, you want to grow it. You got to get your financial chops in order. That doesn't mean you have to know it. Some people are inclined. I'm not. You got to get someone who can really help you understand what's going on because there's so much noise that uh, it's very easy to get lost and, and not be able to make the correct decision. So I think that's one of the hardest things is there's just such an enormous amount of financial complexity in econ at scale that it really does require like a discipline to manage it. What's the biggest challenge your business is facing today and and how are you planning to tackle it? I think the biggest challenge we're facing today is I think the economy itself. So like we're going to have another interest rate hike soon, right? We've had those hikes. Consumers been very, very resilient. So remember, we spend on two things. We spend on things we need and things we want. When we have more money, we spend on more things that we want. When we have less money, we focus kind of our spend on things we need. And also there's population shifts. So you have people who are 45, 50 plus, you know, they're the way they manage their income because they tend to be at the tail end of their earning, right? Like they're not necessarily their highest earning. Most people aren't. They're either retirement or they're kind of posting towards retirement or there's something, right? And so like if your audience is in an older segment, right, then they're going to respond differently to the economy. If they're seeing rates raise and seeing uh, stock market challenges that they're going to feel like they have less money because they're going to see their 401k shift. They're going to feel like they do, even though they haven't sold, they haven't lost. There's a feeling of loss. So you got to basically figure that out. So for us, like we found that people, our audience tends to be, we actually have an audience all across the board. We do a, a lot in the segment of 45 plus because they tend to be a lot more serious about their pet purchases and they've entered multiple life cycles with pets, meaning they've more to pet and then they've gotten another one. They say, okay, I'm going to do better. Right. Like I now I know it really matters. Like I make sure that they take this and like all this other stuff is just fluff. Like that's cool, but I want to make sure that the core stuff they get. The economy plays a big part in that, right? So like how they're feeling and their disposable income. People want fixed income, social security, things like that. They're buying pet supplies all the time, right? What they're spending and how they're shopping will change depending on how much money they have, right? If inflation creeps up, then what they're making on social security doesn't necessarily reflect that right away, right? So they're gonna feel like they have less money. So for us, it's like really building a defense. And so the best defense that we build in is we have a a consumables business that solves ongoing problems for pet health and wellness. And then once pets are on it, we build the best product in the world. And then we know that if they're on it, they're going to see results. If they see results, they're going to stay in. Right. So for us, it's doubling down on that. Now that part of the business, when you're selling supplements, there's different considerations. So you actually have to have physical inventory. You have to keep the inventory controlled. You got to make sure it ships to them in the frequency they need it. So there's a lot of other considerations that actually suck up more cash. So running a consumable business takes a lot of capital. And so for us, it's managing spend from consumers, managing where they are in the economy, right? figure out how our pricing lays into that, how we maintain our margin and all of that, but also like how we go deeper into the consumables business and serve customers there, which is more, again, this more defensive spending. They're going to spend it regardless because they want their pet to feel better. So for us, the biggest challenge here is managing their complexities and then that cash flow. We're a privately funded company. So we took a dollar and we turned it to the next dollar, right? We got to where we are. So just like we run our own households, our own finances, our own budgets, we had to do the exact same thing internally. So when we have one area one invest in, from a financial perspective, we have to engineer that to work. And so I think that's the challenge. The consumer right now is unsure. This also happens during different political cycles because it does impact things as well. But you know, the US consumer is so resilient. It's incredible. 
And globally, I'd rather be here solving this problem than in another, any other country solving this problem. Such so normal challenges, just an, another day in the office, I guess, right? So we signed up for it. We're happy to do it. We love it. We love what we do. One of the big themes that we've definitely talked about throughout this conversation is is solving problems and making sure that you're there to solve problems for your potential customer. And I'm just curious what advice you might have for somebody who's listening that wants to get into the online business space, wants to do it, but they're not quite sure what problem they should be aiming to be solved. How should they go find those problems that still need solutions that they could maybe bring to the marketplace? Well, first of all, I think I love building things in a community. I think we've found success with that. So I would say really there's two things. This is what advice I'd give right now, because advice I would give five years ago, 10 years ago is probably different than what I do now, just based on how everything is played out. One is you want to find a community that you can really understand and you can lean into if you have a product and really start trying to introduce it. We're all big fans of building an MVP or trying to figure out how to MVP a product and get it in people's hands as soon as possible. There's a lot of people who build an amazing product with an amazing brand. They get it, they invest, they put a ton of time and money into it. When they launch it, they just miss it. Right. Like they just missed what the community needed. It wasn't solving a big enough need. Right. And, or they couldn't demonstrate it well enough. Right. Or explain it well enough. So I think that you want to figure out like who is your intended user and figure out how to get close to them and build alongside them. Right. Like, hey, I'm trying this out. One really good way to do that Kickstarter or pre fund, you know, or some kind of mechanism that allows you to kind of test it before you're fully invested in it. So I think that's the way that I would do it now as I build a product, just really validate it, validate and validate it early, early, early. And make sure it solves a big enough problem and enough people get excited about it, not just you and your family, because you and your family are always going to be excited about it. The last thing I would say is that this is, and I, this is the case now, when we started the business, we you know, took a dollar, turned it into other things. That's not where the world is, the reality of what things are now. Things have gotten more expensive. So really what you want to do, the best way to build now is in a community, just like what you guys have where you're you're plugged into resources you're getting you're really investing in yourself so say you're going to launch a business that it's all about the product you want to spend 50 percent of your investment on yourself as a builder and 50 percent on the product that's how i would do it because you're gonna have to build your runway to build your knowledge your expertise you're going to have to become an expert in an area and not only that expert in marketing an expert in user generated content expert video like that's the world we live in and so you want to find what like what you guys have at uplift is like perfect for someone who's like, all right, I want to start a business. Well, you got to invest in yourself at the same time and investing in your thing. And that's absolutely critical because you're going to get so much further faster. So that's my second piece of advice is like, don't think about it just as the product itself. You are the product as well as whatever you're building. So you want to invest in both of those things. Our favorite closing question, what's your favorite business book and why? Recently, I've been reading, and this is our biography of Tesla. And it's such a powerful book because you have a guy who had the most amazing concepts. I mean, he was an absolute pioneer in his day. And he knew it and he was a genius from what he, he created so many things, but he had a, he died broke and alone. And his business acumen was very poor, but his genius and his invention was extremely high. And it kind of goes to what I just said, right? Like you can have the greatest ideas, but if you don't have a concept of business or don't have an idea or how you're going to build yourself and the structure to support this thing, it can be all for naught, right? And so anything on Tesla has been fascinating, but lately that's been the read that's been sticking to me because the greatest idea doesn't necessarily win. It's really the greatest execution. Marshall, where can people learn more about you and iHeartDogs? Go to iHeartDogs.com. You can check me out on LinkedIn. I do a lot there. I'm Marshall Morris. And those are probably the best places to connect. 
That is going to do it for this episode of the Upflip Podcast. Listeners, you can find more advice for how to start or grow a business the right way on the Upflip Hub. And if you like this episode, make sure you let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. Marshall Morris of iHeartDogs, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. 